Hello, friends. Time to find your balls. My name is Jeff Stuckey. As always, I am in the shotgun position, throwing shit out the window with no regard whatsoever for anything. And to give you a source of comfort, Greg Allen is behind the wheel, making sure this motherfucker doesn't run off the road. <laughs> All right. Great. How are you, Greg? <laughs> great start. Yeah. Is that guess, good? Yeah. Got my job cut out for me today. <laughs> yes, you do, my friend. No, you don't. Actually, today will be easy. So uh, because right. I'll I'll mostly keep my mouth shut. That's not true. Yeah, I'll try to keep my mouth shut. So okay, last week uh, we did a little conversation on porn, which you by all you know ninety three percent of all communication is nonverbal. Your <laughs> nonverbal communication said that you loved that conversation. Is that why my knuckles were white and the <laughs> chair arm was bent? Or yeah, finished? that might be me reading into it. So uh, any any parts of that that you feel like need we need to revisit or clean up? Oh, you know, just briefly, um, since my stance was so so harsh in one direction, like this is a bad thing in a lot of ways, you made me think, well, then that's all the more reason to have the conversation because of how detrimental that porn is or can be. So the conversation is what we needed to get to. Right. You know, and that's all you were trying to point out. So it took me a while to figure that out. <laughs> huh. Okay. That's a little discouraging because I, I thought I that were obvious, but Hey, yeah. better late, late than never. Well, Welcome well, to the party. Uh, well, I wanted to have the conversation, but I kept drawing back into, into needing to say, this is my stance and, and we need to, we can't venture out too far. And I, I, I would say that calling it, harsh, um, would, I would say mischaracterization. I, I just think it's a difficult conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think your willingness to enter into the conversation, um, is significant so mm -hmm. that we can get down to not only that conversation, because obviously as, as men, that's a difficult conversation that we need to be able to have, but we as men need to be able to start having difficult conversations and having them well. And to your point, that was our primary objective last week. Yeah. yeah so, so this week, uh, I am super excited, and I don't really do excitement, so to be super excited uh, feels kind of good, I'm not going to lie. We, we have our first guest to the podcast, and one of the things that in the kind of conception and development of man-made, in kind of the backdrop of my mind there's always been certain men that I have gotten to spend time with that have taught me exponentially about what, what it really means to be a man. That goes far, far beyond our, what I would say, silly, nonsensical view that, that oftentimes is around the alpha male, beat your chest, you know, take no shit from nobody, have a multi-million dollar business and a super hot wife with breast implants. And it's like, God, man, it's 2021. Can we not evolve beyond that? Right. And so our guest today, not many people make me feel inferior, but <laughs> this guy makes me feel inferior. And there would be a list of reasons why, but the number one reason is he's fucking funnier than I am. Oh, no. God damn it. And it's just like, <laughs> I hate to acknowledge that mm. because I pride myself as a hysterical, sophisticated, yet hysterical human being. So David Hampton is many things. Uh, he started his career professionally as a singer-songwriter, classically trained pianist. He 
has now redefined himself as an addictions expert and most significant to me, a very influential personal friend. I would like to welcome to the program, David Hampton. (laughs) Welcome. Well, thank you guys. I am very happy to be here and uh, I'm already a fan of your show and what you're doing and your um, rapport, uh, as I you know, said earlier. And uh, I think that uh, you guys have, a, you're, you're touching on some really super important in a very accessible way uh, subjects that we all deal with. So thank you for inviting me in. I don't know if I'm funnier than you or not, Jeff, but I, <laughs> you, you are, know, I mean, I would, David, I, you know me. Yeah, I would not, if it weren't simple, I would not acknowledge that unless it's true. I mean, Uh, and yours is just such a remarkable sense of humor because you're, I think you're as dark and cynical as I am, but you put a candy coating on it and that's where I fall off. I'm just like a turd that just everybody's like, what? Oh my God. Uh, Yeah. Well, we'll see how it goes. Like we'll, we'll see how that, how that plays out in our time together today. I'm just the dog shit. You step in and, and, And then you don't know you've stepped in it until you get in the car, you know, and then you go, yeah, I think I've, yeah, I've, I've stepped in some foreign matter here. So that's it. Touche. He just just made my point. Um, Uh So you, I was thinking you and I met, I'd say eight or nine years ago. Would that be? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Now I knew of you uh, for a very long time. I think I'm considerably younger than you are. Yeah, you are. (laughs) So um, you and your wife, now she was Patsy at that time, but it was David and Patsy Hampton. And by her birth name. Yeah. yeah, So you guys were regular um, musical performers at the church uh, that I grew up in. So I, I have known of you for a very long time. Uh, but we had a mutual friend who thought that we would be kindred spirits. And yeah. for me, she fucking nailed that one. It was like, oh, my God, where's this guy been my entire life? <laughs> so even though we don't get to spend a lot of time together, you're in you're in Nashville, and I'm still up here in beautiful Evansville, Indiana. <laughs> it's always a very rich experience. Um, so thanks for being here. Look forward to the conversation. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. So give us give us some bio. Tell us a little bit about David Hampton, just from uh, maybe, uh, well, I'll just let you jump in to what you, you would deem relevant for us to know about you. Uh, yeah, well, that's a, um, you know, uh, <laughs> going oh, back a, one, a long right? way, yeah. you know, we're digging up some, uh, some bones here, but, uh, I grew up in Evansville, of course, and, uh, it was a great place to grow up and, uh, very kind of idyllic in a lot of ways. Um, I grew up in a, uh, very, um, conservative Christian family. Uh, and I learned early in my life that there was a, uh, an importance that faith played in my story, but um, it has evolved since then into a, a very different ideology for me. Uh, I'm not um, I'm not a a good little 
Baptist boy anymore. And, um, but there is a nine-year-old Baptist kid that lives in my head that <laughs> is on the committee. And he, <laughs> That's great. If, and you he, ever, uh, if you ever figure out how to get rid of that nine-year-old kid, dude, oh God, take that copious guy, notes, know, please. He is, he is perpetually convinced at all times that I am about to go to hell. <laughs> and uh, he is, you know, taking liberty at telling me just how, how and why that is going to happen. And not that I haven't given him reason to believe that <laughs> at times, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a thing, you know, it sticks with you. And um, I was, not to get on a rabbit trail right off the bat, but I was reading a thing about the ideology of hell uh, recently and just how some of the psychological and emotional things that people uh, deal with who have brought, grown up in certain uh, systems. And, uh, and for some people, they've, you know, departed from that ideology. And, but they always have that little part of them that is w- wondering if there's still a chance that that could, you know, be the outcome. So this Baptist kid in my head, you know, wants to drive all the time because he's the kid that's in charge of shame and fear and um, a lot of the things that, uh, gave me some problems in my life. Well, since you're on that rabbit trail, yeah, I, that's, that's one of the things probably that contributed most to me saying, I don't think I need religion. I mean, heaven and hell and eternal life in one of those two places where we don't have a hell of a lot of empirical evidence about their existence that's a lot of fucking pressure, man. Mm-hmm. Like, and then why would we go to hell? Why couldn't if why couldn't some people get to go to Disney World and the others of us just go back into the dust? Like, what? <laughs> Don't those seem well, like better rules, or is that? Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. I, I have a comedian friend who says that. You know, he said, don't take hell away from me. I need hell for Hitler and mama. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah, that's, that's, that's fair. All right. So you, uh, you, uh, moved to Nashville at what stage in life? Uh, I was 27 and, um, I was a songwriter, uh, but a songwriter in Evansville, Indiana, doesn't have the opportunities that a songwriter in Nashville <laughs> does. And uh, so I had been living in Evansville and going back and forth to Nashville, taking my songs. I had met some people in Nashville through some different connections and circumstances and gotten opportunities for people to listen to my stuff. And then that led to appointments and that led to a writing deal that eventually led me to move and then uh, got a new writing deal after I'd been in Nashville for a little time and uh, started playing piano and keys for artists on the road, uh, things like that. So I moved to Nashville uh, when I was 27 in uh, 1987. You can do some name dropping there if you want, because you've played for some <laughs> heavy hitters. Well, it, at the time they were, you know, they were bigger in Christian music. Christian music was bigger, you know, then too, really. Um but uh, I was on the road with Michael Card and Steve Green and Scott Wesley Brown and played for, you know, different people and went to church with a lot of different people that were uh, well known. And that's just kind of a Nashville thing. You, it's hard to, you know, not know somebody. But uh, yeah, I had a, an opportunity to do some fun things and good things as a songwriter and had a couple of songs end up in hymnals and had a, um, the, um, <laughs> it was a, co-writer of the Promise Keepers theme song for a couple of years. Mm. Um, you know, uh, some things that were uh, great. Uh, the, the irony in all of that was that 
um, I had developed this little alcoholism problem <laughs> in the midst of <laughs> all my Christian work, uh, you know, in my, my great quest to be a good Christian boy, uh, the pressure had, uh, exceeded my capacity to, to live under it in, in some ways. Yeah, for me, that requires very little explanation, but maybe we can unpack that a little <laughs> bit more uh, later on. But uh, so was that like a, when you were arrived in Nashville, you're doing all that? Was that like fulfillment of a dream or was that like, holy shit, look what I'm doing? Did, is that kind of what you always wanted to do and accomplish or how did that fit in your journey at that point? Yeah, it was. I mean, at that point, that was a that was definitely a realization of a of a dream, you know, to have music that other people would be able to access in a way that um, also made me money. <laughs> right? Yeah, that was nice. Here's to you, uh, buddy. Well done for a, for a little while. Anyway, it was it was it went for a little while, um, but yeah, it was a realization of a dream because uh, music and God and faith all went together in my head for a long, long time. Um, I really, as a kid, I don't think I gave myself permission or was maybe given permission to experience music outside of certain contexts. So in other words, you know, you've been entrusted with this gift. The way to honor God with that is to use it in this context. And so I, I stayed in that in that lane for a long time, not, not so much out of obedience or fear, but just out of what I thought was the appropriate demonstration of being a good steward of that gift, I guess, you know? So when did alcoholism come into it? Uh, probably when I was about 13. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I just didn't know it yet. Um, but I, I'll tell you when I had my first drink at 13, I remembered, and my parents didn't drink. They had been given a, I tell this story a lot, but uh, they'd been given a bottle of Kentucky bourbon. My dad had, a client had given him that and they didn't know what to do with it. So they put it in the back of the, you know, the pantry behind the baked goods, which is where I joke that, you know, what now we know where Baptists keep their liquor. And so um, they put it back there and um, they went to a Christmas party one night and I, um, out of my curiosity, was home alone Charlie Brown on TV, Christmas lights on in the den, went in, poured this glass of uh, that. My mom had these little uh, juice glass tumblers and I didn't know how much to pour. So I poured about half of that with some ice and I'd seen my Methodist aunt and uncle mixed drinks. And so Dude, well done the other for half, a 13 year old. Listen, I was not playing. And so <laughs> I poured the other half, you know, like Sprite and I took that in mm. and I sipped it. And, um, and, you know, everything I had been told about alcohol in that moment went, was I realized was not true. Um, I didn't think it tasted bad at all. It felt good going down. Um, I did not act unbecomingly. No bad consequences happened to me. I didn't get sick. What I did get though, after about 20 minutes was this, war what I called my warm hug from God. You know, that was the feeling that I had been looking for my whole entire life. And, um, and I just had this vivid impression that, I pressed pause on that moment and I knew that alcohol was going to be a part of my life the rest of my life. Why wouldn't people do this? Why would people pray for peace when Bacardi sells it for 9 dollars 
You know, I mean, that's I find just it the, difficult to argue with you there, my friend. <laughs> that's the bottom line. And so I um, from there drank whenever I could get an opportunity. I didn't drink a lot all the time. I wasn't like off the rails and, you know, um, showing up at algebra, you know, wasted or anything. I just I just looked for opportunities to drink from there. And then I looked for um, faith systems that would encourage or allow people who did, quote, socially drink, you know, but as life kind of went on, alcohol was my sort of my escape hatch. And then when things got, you know, really dicey, um, then I, I really, uh, I really dove in. And that was where I got in trouble. So when I first got, was acquainted with you, your, your wife was still alive. She had not been passed. So she had Mm -hmm. not yet passed. How, uh, how long were you in Nashville when she got diagnosed? Like, tell us a little bit about, um, that aspect. Yeah, we, um, we were in Nashville, you know, we moved in 87, had, um, our daughter in 89 and then, uh, Trisha, but she was going by Trisha by then, um, was diagnosed with MS, uh, uh, in 94. And we were told this was just going to be a very relapsing remitting, uh, type of illness for her. Um, about 80% of MS sufferers, it's a relapsing remitting kind of thing. And so we didn't worry about it too much. I mean, we weren't thrilled with it. We had just bought a house um, and moved in. And, uh, you know, we were just, she was experiencing a lot of symptoms that were real unusual. And um, so there were, there were these walking trails and bike trails in the neighborhood we had moved into. And we would, uh, we would go out walking, but she would get really hot and really um, dysregulated in a way physically, you know, her vision would dim and she would get dizzy. She would get very weak. We'd have to go home. She'd have to cool down, sit down and through a bunch of tests. And over time it resulted in, you know, a diagnosis of MS. So it was one of those things where we thought, well, we'll behave ourselves and it'll, it'll be manageable. You know, we can do this. Won't be great, but we can do this. But she kept having exacerbations and flare-ups and uh, one thing would lead to another and they would try a new treatment. They would try this uh, method of uh, the, the interferon drugs were just starting to come out at that point. So we didn't have a ton of uh, drugs to pick from at that point that people would necessarily today, a diagnosis like, diagnosis like that, you would get immediately something really powerful and good and new and it would be great. I mean, not maybe great, but <laughs> it would be manageable, you know, something that offered you a little more outcome than what we had. But, uh, but she began not to respond to these drugs. And uh, there was a chemotherapy drug that they used for about five years, once every three months. But she, you know, long story short, just graduated from a cane to a walker to a wheelchair to needing a ramp in our garage uh, to having to get a wheelchair accessible van to, um, eventually spending the last seven years of her life in a hospital bed in our home and not being mobile, you know, at all having to be transported and things like that. And so I, I learned early on, like to give her her shots and those types of things. But then, um, there was a point in time where I had to learn to catheterize her because her bladder was neurogenic. And I had to learn to, um, do a lot of the caregiving type things And then eventually she had a urostomy and a colostomy uh, because of the functions that she was losing uh, due to the EMS. 
And I had to learn to do that kind of care because she didn't have the dexterity to do that. And so I was eventually pretty early on a single parent. So I got off the road. I, I took a job at Christ Community Church in Franklin where we were attending and they had opened up a position for a full-time director of worship arts. And um, that was a great opportunity for uh, my experience and my gift mix, I guess, uh, to kind of coexist. And I worked with a lot of talented people and a great talent pool in Nashville here. Uh, as far as church jobs go, it was a very, it was a very good opportunity. So I remember one of, one of you and I's early conversations and, you know, because <laughs> I have no boundaries or filters asking you like, so what has this been like? And I don't know if you remember saying this or not, but you, you said, well, one day my wife moved out and my great aunt moved in. Mm -hmm. So what was that like for you? I, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but like, what was that emotional journey? Like losing your wife to this? I don't know if that's the, a fair way to say yeah. it, but what was your experience like? Yeah, well, it was, um, it was surreal um, because there's no manual that tells you how to do this. You know, and and caregiving is something anybody that's been in that role or is in that role now knows that it's the most lonely place for you because you have you have a lot of feelings and a lot of emotions that don't have categories in your good guy brochure that you carry in your pocket about yourself. <laughs> you know, um, it's a hard thing to realize that there are days you pray that someone you love would die, you know. Uh, there or the or that you would, you know. I mean, I had days where I just said, "God can take either one of us. Pick one." You know, I don't, I don't really give a shit which one you choose, <laughs> but one of us has got to get out of this misery, you know. And uh, so, you know, I, I've got more life insurance, so maybe you should take me, you know. But uh, it was that way. You're alone. You're you're living with someone you don't know. Um, MS affected her cognitively in a way that it doesn't. A lot of people, she became very childlike in a lot of ways. Um, and um, it, it's, a, it's a lonely, lonely place because you don't have, you know, it's not just like you lose your physical intimacy with this person. You lose your personal intimacy with them because they disconnect and they um, withdraw and they go inward. And there's a part of you that realizes at one point that you are not going to reach them again in the same way. And I, one thing that I find interesting in, in it, it's like people in your position, we, we like elevate you to hero status, you know, and we're always mm -hmm. telling you how great you are. And like, like, you know, Oh man, you're just a wonderful person. And it's, I <laughs> yes. always, I always thought like internally, you probably want to say, go fuck yourself, man. This is like, <laughs> stop telling me how great I am. Cause I'm so fucking tired of hearing about that. This shit sucks, but we don't ever really give you the chance to articulate that. <laughs> no, that's very fair. That's very fair because, um, I knew a long time ago, first of all, my life was very compartmentalized. It got very compartmentalized because it, it, to myself, even there was the part of me I could accept the part of me I couldn't. Um, I was going to a shit ton of therapy, you know, while I was going through all this. I got sober in 2005 and I thought my life would get easier and it got harder. <laughs> it got worse. And so my bargaining with God turned out not to be a, a you know, a, a thing that worked. And, um, 
I, I, so I started going to a lot of therapy with an addiction specialist and learned a lot about me, about the real me, about the me that was hiding under the alcohol and the me that the alcohol served. Because a lot of my, my shtick was I drank because I got this sick wife. It got worse. It was intolerable. I drank more. I got sicker. She got sicker. I ended up in full-blown alcoholism. I got sober and then I got healthy and good, you know? And that's not how, that's really not the, the whole truth. The whole truth is there was a whole lot underneath me, clear back to the nine-year-old Baptist kid that um, never got addressed, never got realized, never had a category. And the alcohol began to mask all of that, not just my dire circumstances. I mean, yes, people with living with chronically ill family members develop addictions at a much higher rate. We know that statistically to be true. But the reality is, is that we aren't accounting for the shit ton of reality going on before sickness ever showed up. It just took the issues I had and turned them up to 11. It didn't really change them. You know, it just was like, oh, you you're already on this path. We're just going to crank up the heat a little bit and watch the frog and see what happens, you know. And I was sort of the frog in the pot in that way. But but the truth is, yeah, the hero thing. I mean, I knew how much I was drinking. I knew what I was um trying to hide and get by with. And I was working in a church capacity where I didn't feel like I could be honest uh, with what was going on with me. So I was just trying to make it to the next day. And, you know, I was having a lot of episodes, a lot of unwanted outcomes, a lot of things that, you know, weren't glamorous. I was, you know, peeing in the floor on a regular basis. And I lived with a house in a house with two women, basically, you know, my daughter's a teenager. I know she's not doing it. And my wife's disabled. And I know she's not doing it. Did you so, blame it on you her? Know, or you, did you, we what? didn't have a dog even. I couldn't even say, <laughs> you know, damn the dog, and the, you know, so, but, you know, there'd be, there'd be some surprise for me on a, on a regular basis when I got up in the morning and I didn't have a lot of recollection. Uh, I drank every day the last five years I drank and, and um, I lied about it, spent cash so nobody could trace my spending on the debit card and, you know, all that kind of thing. But I, um, I, it was the only thing I felt like I had any control over and I didn't have control over it at all. But it was a, it was a feeling of empowerment that I had in, that I didn't have anywhere else. So fast forwarding to where I am today just in contrast to all of that. And I, and I work with people with this all the time, but one of the things my therapy and my reality taught me is that I have to have an integrated life. There has to be like one David, (laughs) you know, there's one David that I can take to church if I go or to work if I'm with clients or with my friends or with my old friends from the past or whatever it is. And the things that are true about me and the things you love about me may also be some things you hate about me, you know, but that all has to be true and it all has to coexist. And it all has to be one person for me to keep track of because the 17 versions of me were too much. Was there, was there like a moment in time that that became clear to you or like, what was that an outcome of the therapy or how did that, because I think that is one of the biggest conflicts for us as men is even being able 
to acknowledge that sort of imposter complex that we are stuck in, Mm -hmm. that, you know, every day we pull off the ruse of being somebody that we're not. How how did that awareness come to you, if you recall? Well, um, it came to me through recovery. And it came to me when, um, when I got sober, my faith um, hit the crisis point. I would say crisis. I don't think now of it as a crisis, but it was when you're trying to make your living at Jesus and um, you're not drinking the Kool-Aid you sell. Fucking you know? hit me in the That's, pocketbook. This shit's real now. Like, well, it's, you know, it's like, wow, you know, when did we start to believe this? Or wow, when did that get to be part of our doctrine? Or wow, when did that, you know, you sort of just wake up after you've been asleep for a while and you start realizing that there are things that are inconsistent that you um, may or may not be full on with, but you're, you're working in a system that you've bought into a long, long time ago, thinking you were sincere, you know, and I guess I was, but, um, but the reality happened when my faith took this hit and I didn't know what I believed anymore, or I was too afraid to admit what I believed and just couldn't articulate it. And the circumstances with Tricia led to that hit or just kind of the culmination of all of those things? One of the key parts about getting sober is you have to be honest with yourself. You know, we talk about in the, in the steps, we talk about rigorous honesty and you can't tell other people the truth until you can tell yourself the truth first. And when you get sober and you start to realize certain things, certain doubts or or things that you maybe felt compromised by, or things that you're finally ready to admit are part of you that weren't uh, able to be addressed a you know particular time back. Those things, those things bring conflict, and so um, I think that it was when I got sober that I really realized that there were things that um, I wasn't altogether on board with. And I wasn't altogether being true to myself about. And so the first thing I had to do was give myself permission to tell myself the truth. And then the question becomes, okay, now what are you going to do about it? And that part's not easy, right? I mean, when, when you have that, I, you know, I, I, we have similar paths somewhat in that, um, I was therapeutically uh, in the business of Jesus, and I'm not going to lie, business was good. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, I realized that same sort of thing. Like, I am two different people. And Mm -hmm. if I am honest with myself about the true person that I am, this is going to come at a fucking huge (laughs) cost, man. Like, this is going to pull the whole system down. Yeah. And that's the part I think oftentimes we're not honest about. You know, it's like you can be the best version of you and you can if you have a vision board and it's like I don't think a vision board's going to help you get through that shit, man, because it's <laughs> it's fucking terrifying. Yeah. And oftentimes causes your world to collapse and you have to rebuild it. And Yeah. I, I appreciate you saying that because that's just simply the truth. And I don't think we're always honest about how truly difficult this is. Yeah. I think, I think that we, um, you know, uh, yeah, I, I'm just saying yes to what you're saying, because that for me was the, that was the hitch. I couldn't, 
get my head around the fact that I was so conflicted on what felt like all of a sudden, you know, it just felt like, man, I, when, when did this happen? When did I wake up and this not be okay? So can I take you back just a little bit because I want people to kind of understand, and I'm putting you on the spot. I don't know if you'll remember this story. Um, do you remember telling or when you took uh, Trisha to the eye doctor and it was pouring down rain? Remind me, was this when she fell out of the wheelchair? Oh, God. This is so, horrible. It, <laughs> it is. And the first time you told me I laughed hysterically and felt like a piece of shit, it do you mind telling that story? Because I think it just gives some kind of sense of just who you were, what you went through. Is that okay telling that story? Yeah, this was, I mean, this was a day in the life, you know, it was just, um, she had had, you know, so many, I mean, God bless her. She had had so many calamitous uh, episodes, you know, she, when she, before she got in the wheelchair, you know, she had fallen and broken her arm and had to have surgery and had to have pins and things put in her arm and had to recover in a, you know, convalescent center basically for weeks. And, uh, then she, uh, broke a leg, uh, trying to get out of bed and, uh, had to go back and recover for several weeks. And, uh, she had a ruptured appendix from all that chemo treatment for her MS and, uh, nearly died and then came home. And I mean, she was just having one thing after another, after another. And so, uh, we, went to the eye doctor. She was in this big, big power wheelchair. It was a big ass $35,000 <laughs> wheelchair. Wow. And, uh, I mean, Shit. it did everything. It was. Yeah. Oh. And, and it, it would recline and stand up and spin and God knows what we would do. Um, but, uh, the chair, uh, we had to, we had taken her to the, to the eye doctor and I called ahead and said, you know, can you accommodate you know, people with disabilities and, oh, of course, and blah, blah, blah. Well, we got there and of course they can't, you know, I mean, it was like, well, we didn't know you meant like she can't walk at all. <laughs> I'm like, well, what the hell do you think a disability is? You know, it's not because she's just not good at soccer. I mean, this is, she freaking can't stand on her, on her feet. Okay. So what do you do? So we get in there and the guy, the eye doctor is his older gentleman. And he said, well, he said, I can pull her chair. We can, we can align her chair up to the uh, optometrist, you know, thing with all the, the, the discs and gizmo in front of it. But he said, you'll have to slide her into the other chair because I have a bad back. I'm like, of course you do. <laughs> you know? So, um, anyway, so I, I, yeah. So I slide her into that, you know, chair, get her positioned and he gives her the exam. Well, we have to slide her back into her wheelchair to get her, you know, back out. So I put her back in that she's having trouble getting adjusted back into the chair, but we get back out, we get in the van, it's pouring rain, you know, of course it's a beautiful day. And, um, we go up the ramp and get her into the, into the vehicle and I, you know, get her secured, get her home. And she's telling me, you know, she's feeling a little like she's is slipping a little bit in the chair and she's having a hard time pushing herself back. And I said, well, you know, let's, let's try to get you positioned. We'll get you in the house and, you know, we'll, we'll get you back in bed. And, um, so she said, okay, I, I, she says, I'm just going to come down the ramp and you just stand in front of me. 
And so she heads down the ramp instead of backing down, like I would normally back her out. You know, you typically don't want a disabled person going face forward downhill. That's not, right. <laughs> that's not how Seems it's Seems obvious done. now that you say you it know, out loud. Yeah, yeah right? now, that, now that I point that out. <laughs> um, so, so she's coming down and the chair, um, it was a little joystick thing and her hand slipped or it bucked somehow, but the chair came to an abrupt stop just dead on the, on the ramp, just kathunk. And she went lunging forward while I'm standing in front of her. I'm trying to catch her, but she goes down on both legs and just wishbones herself on this ramp. And we go down and then she goes down face first in front of me. So it's pouring rain. We're in the driveway. I'm thinking, holy shit. What, you know, what am I going to do? I can't get her I've got to get her inside. So I try to take her in under her arms and drag her into the driveway, into the garage. I can't get her in. So I go in and get my daughter. I said, you're going to have to help me get mom up and get her back in her chair so we can get up the ramp. And she kept saying, my legs don't feel good. My legs don't feel good. And I'm like, I'm sure they don't. You just, you know, went down on the ramp with both feet going opposite the direction that they are supposed to face. And it's still but raining, just, right? Yeah. And it's pouring <laughs> rain. We're soaking. But by this time, we're wet rats. You know, this is just us wet rats soaking and she's trying to get up in the chair. And she's, it's at this point, David, this is why you're a better human being than me, because I would have just started walking. Like <laughs> just, I have no fucking clue where I'm going. I yeah. hope I drip whatever, but I'm going down the road. I'm out of here. <laughs> like, I know, well, I don't think the thought didn't occur to me. I'd just be like, you know, you all knock yourself out, have at it. But we got her inside, but lo and behold, you know, I noticed that her legs were really starting to, bruise and get discolored and things like that over the afternoon and um, called the doctor and he said, well, maybe you should bring her into the ER. Well, the only way we could do that was with ambulance transport. So we had to call an ambulance and go back out, you know, and um, go to the ER. And she had actually broken both legs under the knee um, and they both had to be pinned and put rods, had rods and pins put in. She was in a rehab facility for 12 weeks because, you know, we can't have her at home and not be able to move um, even more than she couldn't before. And so, um, you know, and so she, the, the, the ER doctor said, if you hadn't, if I didn't know your record of injuries and the things that you've got going on here. He said, it looks, the, the brakes are almost identical in both legs. He said, it looks like the kind of brakes that happen to people when they've been clubbed, you know? And he said, it, it looks like you've abused her. And he said, I would have, I would have thought this could have been, you know, an abuse situation if I didn't know already, you know, the situation circumstances. And I thought, well, and this course, is just, me- and this is just a day in the life for you, right? Well, yeah. I mean, it's an extraordinary story, but it's like, this is what life became for you. Well, yeah, this was what we did, you know? So you just called people and said, Hey, we're in the hospital again, only this time it's this, you know? And, um, and that's how you, that's just what life was. So I would feel like David, I would get lost in a sense of this just isn't fair. I didn't sign up for this. Like, sure. If I would have, if I would have known this chapter was in the book, maybe, I, I mean, one, did you struggle with that? And then how do you deal with that? 
Well, yeah, I did struggle with it because I, it wasn't fair, <laughs> you know, right? um, it, it, I mean, it wasn't fair. And um, I did feel like I was missing a lot and rather, but rather than feel that and articulate it and take it up with, you know, my perpetually um, confused relationship with God, I just drank, you know, cause I could do that. I think that's another thing that just where I have so much respect for you because it, it wasn't the most ideal time for you to deal with that. Right. I would have been like, well, fuck yeah, I drink and I piss all over the floor. And if you were in this circumstance, you would too. I mean, it's like you had yeah. a, an airtight alibi for continuing to drink and yet you still confronted that. Well, you know, yeah, the thing that, the thing that was so, um, I mean, the alcohol, the behavior caused me a lot of shame, but it also, the bigger, the bigger thing I was experiencing was I knew that I was emotionally absent from my daughter mm. and she had two sick parents. One she thought couldn't help it. And one she thought could, you know, she was equally pissed at both of us, I think. Mm. Um, but she was missing a lot. She didn't have a mom that could get engaged with her and do all the things that a lot of moms were doing. You know, I went with Lauren to pick out her prom dress. I went with Lauren to pick out her senior picture dress. I went with Lauren and uh, unflattering un as this is for both of us to pick out her first bra, you know, mm -hmm. as, and, and having to have the woman in Dillard's, you know, help her with a fitting, you know, cause I don't have any fucking clue what you <laughs> do with those things. Right. You know? I don't have many boundaries, but that, that I'm going to put about, yeah, we're going to, yeah. we're going to use the dealer Dillard's lady there. Yeah. Cause I'm like, I don't know how to do this, you know? And Lauren, of course, being a young preteen teenage girl was like, you do not get to talk, <laughs> you know, you don't just, just don't even weigh in. I'm humiliated, embarrassed, you know, and I remember her coming out and going, did those work? And she said, yes, let's just go, you know, sounds about right. let's just buy these. Let's go. Come on. Yeah. You know, but there were a lot of things Lauren was not getting. And I knew that if I continued like I was, um, our relationship was not going to survive. So then when Trisha passed, mm -hmm. what, what was that like for you? Uh, that was 2013. And um, so, you know, this had gone from a diagnosis in 1995 that you're not going to get um, too terribly sick with uh, to um, 2013. And she died in the hospital bed in her home that she'd been in for seven years. I got sober in 2005. So the last eight years of her life, I was pretty present emotionally and, and all of that. She was not oddly. And, um, I was hoping in my sobriety, we'd have this resurgence of a relationship that we didn't really have. Mm. Um, not to her fault. We just couldn't, you know? And, uh, so when she died, it was the weirdest experience because I had told my therapist, who asked me, you'll appreciate this as a therapist. Uh, my therapist asked me um, if before Trisha died, she said, are you prepared for the anxiety you're going to experience when Trisha passes? And I said, you know, Marilyn, I love you and you're good at what you do and everything. <laughs> but um, I can't imagine experiencing any anxiety here. 
you know, this is not going to, this is not going to be something that's going to do that. And she said, uh, yeah, there's going to be a big hole here. And I think it's going to be, uh, there's going to be some anxiety you need to be, you know, thinking about. And I thought I was on the uh, anticipatory grief pay ahead plan, yeah. you know, on yeah. that. Or taking and, care uh, of that, check that box. Yeah, so check that box. So we've, we've grieved already here, you know, if I haven't <laughs> grieved this, I, I don't know what to tell me. So um, she passed away at 1030 on a Monday night. It was weird because, you know, they, we had made arrangements with the funeral home ahead and they came and got her that evening at about 1130 and, um, and they took her out of our house and I never saw her again. You know, we didn't have an open casket for her viewing or for the funeral. She did not want that. Um, she had been very specific about those kind of things. I woke up the next morning at six and there was nothing for me to do. Mm. There was absolutely nothing for me to do. My, my day used to start, you know, I woke up, I turned Trisha, I set her up, I got her changed, we got breakfast, we did this, we did that, medicines, all this stuff, nothing to do, you know. And I realized that I just had about four extra hours in the day that I didn't have the night before. Right. You know, I walked in her room and there were no sheets on the bed. There was her bed, the recliner, the television, all the stuff in the bedroom, you know, chest and dresser and stuff and no her, you know, and it was the weirdest experience that she just was gone. She was just gone. And I suddenly had this big gaping hole. And even after, you know, I mean, obviously first few days, there's funeral and all that stuff, but um, we had a lot of planning to do and a lot of people in, but people go home, people go away, you know? And, um, and then you're alone and then you've got to figure out what you're going to do from here. And I realized that was where I had a lot of choices that I had hidden behind her illness in order to avoid in a lot of ways, you know, like, um, all of a sudden I didn't have to keep the job that I had all of a sudden I didn't have to stay in the profession I was in. I didn't have to, um, adopt any real ideologies that my paycheck was attached to anymore. I could branch out, so to speak. And um, that scared the living shit out of me, you know, because now all my excuses were gone. Mm. You know, they left at 1130 Monday night and I was me alone with my reality, the things I already knew about me and, and what I was going to do about it. So what was that? Pro what's life been like for you since? It's been great. And, a, and I don't mean in a, you know, woo, you sure. know, that was glad that's over. You right. know, I mean, but probably in some respect though, right. Well, I mean, there was a, there's obviously there's a point of relief for sure. sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'd be very naive to pretend that that didn't come across, but there was, it's, it's been an evolving, integrating process. Um, you know, talking about all the parts of me that can coexist in one person are coming to bear now um, because I'm in a profession where um, I work with people with a lot of uh, substance use issues, unwanted chronic behaviors, things like that. Um, I'm a, a certified professional addiction recovery coach, which just means that I, I walk people through the process of recovery, whether it's with treatment or helping them get what they need uh, in one respect or another. But I help people get in touch with their reality. I still am a part of a faith community. I joined, I, I was confirmed in the Episcopal Church about three years ago. 
um, because I felt like I do believe in Christian community, but I don't believe in um, certain types of um, ideology. And I feel like this is a way, a place where I am most um, able to be honest with myself and God and other people. I am finally experiencing um, something that resembles my life. I sold our house, you know, I live in a nice building in uh, an apartment that I love. And um, I don't have to take five people out with me when I go anywhere now, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I just take me, you know, and, and, and the Baptist kid, but he, you know, (laughs) he has to sit in the back. (laughs) (laughs) I think one of the things that is so, and I don't know the exact right word, but that, that just struck me in terms of just kind of evaluating what is it what does it mean to be masculine what does it be a to be a real man what does it and you know i get so frustrated in this sort of this alpha male portrayal thing probably that mm-hmm. some of that you know just comes from my own growing up and uh you know being so involved in sports and feeling like that was expected of me and you know those kinds of things but i also think that it it still dominates far too much of the narrative of what it means to be a man mm-hmm. and your story for me is so compelling because of several different reasons but one your honesty about the struggles with it and you know just the fact that this ain't fucking fair because it's not and yet to see you around trisha and to see you honor her out of your integrity and it, it, for lack of a better expression be a man I've met Lauren a couple of times. Um, she's a beautiful young woman, well done, um, <laughs> solid as can be. You know, in our archetypes of masculinity, taking our daughter to buy her first bra, you know, that's probably not in a lot of those archetypal conceptions, right? Mm-hmm. But that's what that's what was so continues to be so compelling is that you always showed up to the demands that reality needed from you when it was easy, when it wasn't easy. And then to know that you like in the midst of the trials of Job (laughs) took on like self-actualization and sobriety. It's like, bro, (laughs) your timing might suck. Like you might be able to get away with this alcoholism stuff. But then you, then to hear you speak to the fact that, but Lauren needed me Mm -hmm. again, that's the archetype of masculinity that we need today. Mm. Men, that are showing the fuck up to the demands of their reality in whatever form it requires. Mm-hmm. And that's where I get so frustrated with, you know, the alpha male concept because it's like, 
the alpha male is like, well, I have to retain my sense of alpha maleness, so uh, I'll drop you off outside of Dillard's, and here's my credit card, and you can just let me know how it goes, or contract it out to an aunt or a cousin, or any of those kinds of things. And and that's why I admire you so much, because you're funnier than I am, mm-hmm. and you just always showed up. Mm. And... I just don't know a better narrative for authentic masculinity than yours. Wow. Well, I appreciate you saying that, Jeff. I really do. Yeah. I mean, the conversation of what, what a man is in our culture, I, I think that um, just showing up and telling yourself the truth, that's, that's the beginning of everything. And it, and it sounds hokey and it sounds woo woo and you know, all of that kind of shit, but there, Mm -hmm. I, I, in my life, it, there was no, there was nothing, there's never been a challenge in my life that required more courage than that. Mm -hmm. Being totally honest about who I am, but then also having the courage to live that out. Mm -hmm. And, and this is, you know, I'll punctuate this again. You know, one of the things that we say about man-made is that it ain't for everybody. It's not for the faint of heart, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's not like some weekend go bang your chest kind of shit or something like that. It's like, nope, you're going to have to deal intimately and honestly with yourself. And there has never been anything more difficult than that. And there has never been anything in my life more rewarding than that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, once you get past the you know, just the initial fear and, and terror of telling yourself the truth, um, whatever it is, um, the rewards beyond that are, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, that's when you finally know peace, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Right. And know? it's not a Lamborghini and it's not a 12,000 square foot house or a super right. high hot wife with double D implants. It's none of that bullshit. Right. It's, it's internal. It is that internal sense of knowing exactly who I am and being completely comfortable being exactly who I am. Yeah, exactly. So I'm going to put you on the spot because I'm going to make you commit to coming back on many more occasions because we have a lot, <laughs> lot, lot more to pick your brain about. Um, but I, I, I say this in earnest, David. Thank you. Um, oh, thank you. So thank much. you. Yeah, thank Very you for much. the friendship that we have the friendship that we have again, we don't get to see each other often, but when we do, it's just picking up where we left off. Thank you for the privilege of participating in your story, but more importantly, thank you for sharing your story today in our effort to rewrite the narrative of what it truly means to be a man. Well, I appreciate that. I really do. And yes, absolutely. I will be back anytime. Right. I love uh, you what you guys he, are doing. He said anytime. So, All right. So <laughs> we, we will be back soon and we will be back often. Yeah. Well, that's, that's great. That is, that is so good. All right. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, Dave. So that's my friend, David. Well, that was awesome. I, I don't think we could have told that story in an academic or theoretical context. I mean, it, it had to be lived out. And that was just phenomenal to, to hear his story. Yeah, and it was it was incredible. I mean, I said it to him, and I'll say it again, that every demand of reality that was required of him, he 
he showed up for it. Mm-hmm. Wasn't always pretty, right? And, yeah. and and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't try to polish it. Like there were struggles along the way with alcoholism and just all of those sorts of things. And no matter what, he always showed up. Right. It didn't. I never caught in his conversation that he ever looked for a way out. Like you said, there were ways out. Anybody would have gone along with, hey, dude, it's okay. Step out. But, Absolutely. I mean, yeah. full-time caregiver um, can yeah, understand. Care. I mean, yeah, yeah, understand why you weren't there for your daughter. Don't be so hard on yourself. Like all of those kinds of things. That might be even true, and yet he showed up. Yeah. My daughter needs me. She, yeah. she doesn't need my excuses. She needs me. <laughs> right. And as difficult as this is for me to deal with this right now, I'm going to deal with this right now. It wasn't about what he wanted from life. It wasn't about creating his the best version of him. Or maybe it was, but not in the way that we typically conceptualize that, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, this is what the world, this is what the universe needs from me right now. Mm-hmm. And as hard as it fucking is, I'm going to show up. Right. And he didn't get to be this best guy version of himself by pursuing that. He pursued the integrity of who he was and and that and then that led him to that. I mean, he had a very successful recording and <laughs> yeah. traveling and you know, at that point in time, he's plugged in, he could hire a full-time caregiver, oh, all right. of the, you know, yeah. he had he had a lot of different options that he was afforded. Mm-hmm. And he took a job and he became what his wife needed to be. And then when he realized that that was preventing him from being what his daughter needed to be. He dealt with his shit. Yeah. And he took his daughter bra shopping. Yeah. <laughs> That's a beautiful story. That's masculinity at its best right there. Yeah. And and the the so intricate tie-in to man made is he didn't go by what the world would have told him he needed to be. He stood by what he knew he needed to be. This is what my reality requires of me. Yeah. I'm not gonna you know, create some new version of me. I'm going to be a version of me that meets the demands of this reality. And he did it. And that's exactly right. That's the journey of man made. It's becoming the man that you need to be to live in your reality. Yeah. And, and to be comfortable with it at the end, instead of some version that someone else created that is not at all fulfilling for yourself or useful to the people around you. You don't have to go buy more shit to prove something to yourself. You just get to be okay with you. Yeah. And that's why he inspires me so much. Yeah. Well, thanks for bringing him in. That's great. My pleasure. Next time we'll finish our conversation on secrets. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. All right. We'll pick up on that. All right. Thanks. (laughs) 